We've been reading the Scriptures together through a book that edits some Bible readings together, and we've been reading this week in the Gospel of John. If you're reading along with us, uh, we're going to read the actual complete biblical content of an awkward encounter that Jesus had with a woman that, frankly, He shouldn't have been talking to. Now, I don't know about you, but I was probably in my late teens when I realized how much I loved socially awkward situations as long as I was not in the middle of them. (laughs) If I could stand on the outside and watch someone else put their foot in it for a change, just nothing delights me more. This really came home to me. Uh, Years ago, I was a counselor at Hume Lake, uh, early, early days of, of my marriage, and I had gone along as a counselor, and that week they had, like they almost always have, just an absolutely spectacular Bible teacher. I wanted to be this guy. You know, I am drinking it all in, not just the Bible content that he's teaching, but the way he delivered it seems virtually all from memory and certainly all of it straight from the heart, just a remarkable storyteller, understood the Bible clearly from cover to cover, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is my hero. This is someone I can pattern myself after. As far as I can tell, this is a perfect human communicator. About three days later, he and I are, I'm kind of, you know, I've become a fanboy, and I'm kind of following him around and just watching how he goes through life. We're standing with another young ministry couple, and this amazing expositor of God's Word, who is never at a loss for words, says to a young woman, when's your baby due? I know, right? You already know how this ends. I didn't know either. She was a stranger to me too. And she did nothing to cushion the blow. She looked right at him and with a completely stoic expression said, the baby's five months old. Yeah. And, you know, this genius Bible teacher kind of, his mouth drops open, his eyes go like plates. I look at him like, what now? How do you talk your way out of this one? He hemmed and hawed and stuttered and stammered and tried to get to, I'm sorry, and it was so awkward, I walked quickly away because I desperately needed to laugh, and he was a big guy, and I didn't want either one of them to slap me. At that moment, I realized, and I've enjoyed it ever since, if I can kind of be on the outside looking at a painfully awkward social situation, I am entertained. In John chapter 4, you're going to see Jesus put himself deliberately in a social situation that was wildly awkward. And then the disciples are going to join him in the middle of that. They're going to catch him speaking to someone he shouldn't be speaking to, and it's going to get far worse. And here's why it's in the Bible. Everything in the Gospel of John, John tells us at the end of his Gospel, is written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing we may have eternal life. That's what's on the line. If you're here for the first time ever, if you're in a church for the first time ever, or it's been a first time for a long time, and some of my fellow Christians or I have personally disappointed you, you need to know that when Jesus is speaking, everything He says and does is oriented to bring people to the realization that He is eternal life, that He alone spiritually satisfies people's thirst, He alone can feed people's 
spiritually so that they are never hungry. He alone can bring people into God's family. He alone can walk into messy lives and rest and be himself and be perfectly comfortable in the middle of all of that mess and cover it with his life so that those people can be saved. All of that is in John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, which probably is a more famous chapter, Jesus has been talking to the pinnacle of the religious life of his day. A man named Nicodemus, a ruler among the Jews, one of the chief Pharisees, has come to Jesus by night and says, basically, we know you come from God. No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus engages him in an intense spiritual conversation saying, here's the thing, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus misses the point entirely, thinks he's talking about physical birth, says, how can a man be old and be born again? I don't understand what you're saying. And Jesus gives him the most famous Bible verse perhaps in the entire Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's John chapter 3. In John chapter 4, we're told that the social awkwardness, the tension begins because these Pharisees who Nicodemus represented are starting to hear just how successful Jesus is in his ministry. Read with me John chapter 4 verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John… That's John the Baptist who had gone ahead of him and prepared the ground for him. It says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, those are long ago and far away words and times, and they may not mean much to you, but if you were reading this in Jesus' day, Verse 4, where it says that Jesus has to go through Samaria, if you were an observant, Scripture-reading, synagogue-attending, God-loving, God-fearing, rule-keeping Jew, verse 4 would have made you a little uncomfortable. There would have been a little cringe there. Because Jesus is in the south, and He wants to go north. He wants to go back to the land of where most of His disciples apparently are from, where a great deal of fishing goes on, he's going to go to the back country a little bit and associate again with the common people where he had called many of his disciples from. But he has to go south to north. He has to go through Samaria. And a lot of people have heard the story of the Good Samaritan, and we know there's, there's something weird with the Samaritans, but we have no idea. And I'll try, but I'll probably fail in conveying just how deep the rejection, the antipathy, the disdain that the Jews had for the Samaritans really was. They had absolutely no use for them. They were in every single way people to be looked down on. They were people who had adopted a pagan religion. They, had in, they were the descendants of people who hundreds of years earlier had intermarried with pagans. They had basically cut the Scriptures in two and said that we will only read and obey certain parts of it. Because they were excluded from worship in Jerusalem, they had actually reread the Old Testament to find a new place for God's temple to be. They had created their own system and place of worship. 
In other words, racially, culturally, religiously, in every single way, there was nothing that any practicing observant Jew in the first century wanted to do with the Samaritans. In fact, some Bible students tell us that they would cross the river twice to get away from Samaria. They would go the long way around and loop around Samaria, making a much longer journey than necessary just to avoid that territory. Not Jesus. He's going to go straight through Samaria because he has a difficult conversation that he needs to begin. It says in verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. In other words, these are ancestral lands. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, if your Bible translation, like mine, says the sixth hour, that doesn't mean much to you, maybe. In Jewish reckoning, what that means is it's high noon. Now, if you know anything about Israel, this probably wasn't physically comfortable. You didn't want to be sitting next to a dusty well at noon. And Jesus is going to deliberately stop there, and what is his physical condition? We're going to read the Bible together. We're going to study a little bit together. I'm going to ask you questions and ask you not to be an oil painting, but to be a congregation and to talk back from time to time, okay? What is Jesus' physical state at this point? He's tired. He's tired, and he's been walking, and he's thirsty. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John explains for the reader, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and it may be one of the greatest understatements in the whole Bible. They have no dealings, and now he's doing something Very, very awkward. In fact, her heart was sinking already as she got to the well. If you know the rest of her story, we can well imagine why she was going to the well at noon. Bringing the water, that's woman's work. But going at noon, that's just silly. That's hard, heavy work. The well today in the Holy Land is about 100 feet deep. It was probably much deeper then. So what you're talking about is the hard work of lowering a pitcher into a deep well, drawing it out, and carrying it home. She has good reason to do that at noon. As you're going to see, it's very likely that she has chosen the hottest portion of the day for the simple reason that she doesn't want to see anybody when she's doing this chore. As you'll see, it's very, very likely that the tongues in the town have been wagging about her, so she has built her whole life on living as best she can, getting as much enjoyment as she can out of life in this little town, and at all costs avoiding social interaction with people in her own town who are accustomed to looking down at her. Now, unfortunately, there's a Jewish guy sitting at the well at noon. And it's just flat out strange. Jesus has disciples. This is a group culture. He shouldn't have been alone. Somebody should have been with him. But Jesus is going to send them to buy food, apparently, and as a group, collectively, they're going to leave Jesus sitting there waiting for their return. And she's shocked, and she pushes back, and she not too politely says, how can you ask me for water? We're not the same kind, remember? 
I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew, I'm a woman, you're a man. Let me tell you how deep the antipathy toward women in the ancient world was. Rabbis said regarding Jewish women, one of them said to teach a woman the Scriptures is equivalent to selling your daughter into prostitution. There's a vast cultural chasm between the religious elite and any woman in the ancient world. That's not in Scripture, that's man-made religion crushing people and holding them down in their place. The Samaritans were even lower than that in the Jews' understandings. And Jesus is going to plunge right into the heart of awkwardness. You'll have to follow with me closely because the, com- the words here are pretty dense and they're hugely important. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water." Wow. If you you understood who's talking to you, you wouldn't argue with me about the water of this well. You would understand that a gift from God is being offered to you, and if you're confused about religion and wondering what church is about, let me tell you, the only way to have a relationship with God is to receive it from Him as a gift, meaning you cannot earn it. That's where Nicodemus went wrong. That's where every religion goes wrong. Every religion says, here's the bar, work hard and get to it. Here are the things you need to do, and if you do them long enough and well enough and sincerely enough, then God will accept you. Jesus says, no, it is the gift of God. I am offering you living water. If you would ask it from me, I would give you living water. Now, is Jesus speaking spiritually or physically here? See, he's changed levels on her, hasn't he? He asked her for a drink. She said, I can't. You know that we're terribly inappropriate. At a certain point, I think she's wondering just how much more scandal can circle my life in this town. Now I'm talking to a Jewish guy. Because Samaritans had no use for the Jews either. I mean, the, the, the hatred went both ways. Her life is a mess, as you're about to discover, and now she's doing the very worst possible thing, and she wants to quickly remind him, in case he has forgotten or lost his senses, that this cannot be done, and he changes levels and starts talking to her about a satisfying, saving, life-giving relationship with God Himself. She doesn't get it. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Listen to her pushback. Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's what we call a rhetorical question. What do you think she believes the answer is? No. You're of no importance. You're certainly not one of the founders of our nation. You're not one of our spiritual ancestors. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Is he talking spiritually or physically? Spiritually. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you can visualize that a little bit, you can see just how much Jesus offers. Not only will your thirst be quenched, you yourself will become a spring and water will pour out of you. You will be satisfied, you will be refreshed, and so will others. I mean, it's an extraordinary gift that Jesus is laying out in front of her. 
Can she understand it? Not yet. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now she's interested. It stinks to get water at noon. And it's a daily task. There's no plumbing. There's no refrigeration. This is her daily life. And she has ordered her life to avoid the town gossips. They say in Mexico, little village, big hell. For how, if you live in a small town, if ever you soil your name, if you ruin your reputation, that's it. Because everybody knows and everybody remembers you at your worst moment. They remember your, your blooper reel. They remember your lowlights. And you do not outlive it. That's why so many people leave small towns as soon as they can. She's still not with him. She's still speaking physically. Now, if she could avoid going to the well, that sounds wonderful. Jesus is going to make it even more awkward. Watch. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And again, a man and a woman in this culture should not be having this conversation at all. Now he has plunged into something that a man should not discuss with a woman alone. Now he's bringing her husband into it, and he has put his hand on the most painful part of her life, and she knows it. And she, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Ooh. Remember the oath in court? You promise, they make you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth. She's told the truth, but she hasn't told the whole truth. Jesus knows it. Why don't you go get your husband? We'll talk. We'll relieve a little of this social tension, at least, by getting your husband here. Sorry, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. You've had five. And we don't know the backstory and the point of John telling us this story is to deliver history. We don't want to over-psychologize or try to imagine all that went on, whether she was widowed a bunch of times or they divorced her or she left them. But whatever it is, she has given up on any kind of social propriety and any kind of religious obedience because she's had five husbands now and in this village with what appears to be this reputation, now she's living with a man. That's why she didn't want to tell him, and he brings it up. You see, one of the things that religious people don't believe is that Jesus is comfortable in the middle of messes, that he really is, as an old song says, a friend to sinners, that he really is, as the gospel says, the one who came to seek and to save the lost. Not religious people, not righteous people who have no need of repentance. He came to seek us and find us at our very worst point. He has laid this woman's life open in a gentle way that brings her to the point of everything in her life has been made to avoid this kind of knowledge and these kinds of conversations, and he won't have anything to do with hiding anymore. Gently, lovingly, sweetly, he brings out the truth, and now she's starting to get the spiritual point. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Who could have told you that? You're not from around here. I know everybody in this town, and nobody likes me. 
and you know my whole story, and you're going to mention my five marriages and the man I'm living with now, surely you speak for God. Where'd you get that kind of knowledge? Where'd you get that kind of insight? And she is going now, as Jesus is trying to bring her face to face with Him as God's gift who can satisfy spiritual thirst and save people. And by the way, the reason I'm telling you this story from God's Word is He wants to do the exact same for you. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing of finding people where they're religiously self-assured as Nicodemus was or people who have given up on every social convention and every effort to be good enough for God. Jesus is seeking all kinds of people to make them into His disciples so that they will receive Him as a gift from God to save them. Please understand, what you saw in the baptisms are things Jesus told us to do, but not in order to be pleasing to Him, but to give a picture of the fact that His life, burial, death, and resurrection are enough to save anyone. That's why Christians are baptized. And He's trying to draw her into this conversation, but as He's trying to bring her face-to-face with her need of Him, she's going to try to throw a doctrinal conversation stopper into the mix. And please understand, as you try to tell people about Jesus, as soon as the matter of spirituality or Jesus comes up, a lot of people will reach for this conversation killer. And they'll try to bring you into some kind of theological controversy to get you off track and get you away from talking about the one who can save them, which is Jesus. Here's her effort. Read with me. She said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Does that go together? that have anything to do with what they've been talking about? They've been talking about him, and they've been talking about her. They've been talking about the mess of her life. She says, time out, can we have a doctrinal discussion? (laughs) See, they had their own place of worship, and she says, since you speak for God, can you settle a religious controversy for me? Now she's going to play theologian at the well. And take advantage of the fact that someone who apparently has divine insight, can you tell me once and for all who's right in this controversy between Jews and Samaritans? Jesus is going to bring her right back to it. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus always tells the truth, even when it's not popular. Some people would say, we've got to sidestep that kind of controversy to bring people to Jesus. Jesus, quickly, on the way to bringing her back face-to-face with Him, is going to settle the controversy right there. Listen, salvation is coming from the Jews because, as He's about to tell her, I'm the one. But you don't need to worry about sacred place and sacred space. The hour is coming where there's not going to be on your mountain or ours. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, never mind the doctrinal controversy. It doesn't matter anymore. You're living in a new day because the Father Himself is seeking worshipers. 
And Jesus is speaking to both religious people and social religious outcasts because of that single fact. The Father is seeking to bring people around Him to love Him and enjoy Him and worship Him forever. And that's why He's at the well. She's starting to wake up to what Jesus is really talking about. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Wow. I dare you, try to find in the Gospels an example where Jesus more clearly tells anyone exactly who He is. In one conversation, He moved from I shouldn't even be here and we certainly shouldn't be talking to I'm the one the one you've been promised, the one you've read about in the Scriptures your whole life, I'm the one. I am He. And this social conversation has been, this conversation has been terribly awkward socially, but can I tell you, it's about to get a whole lot worse. Because look what happens just then. Just then His disciples came back. It was bad. She got a little weirded out as she walked toward the well, and he's resting by it. They're really weirded out. We can't leave Jesus alone for a minute. We go to buy food. <laughs> we come back, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman, someone who is visibly, identifiably, not from our crowd, and a woman to boot. I know they're uncomfortable because it says they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, here's two questions, one for her, one for him. What do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? No one dared say what they wanted to say, and that's the beauty of social awkwardness. Someone desperately wanted to say, hey, lady, what do you want? We're just passing through. We didn't want to come this way. But he made us. We're his disciples, so here we are. What do you want? And certainly no one dared to ask him. It's just as, it's just as bold, probably worse. Why are you talking with her? And she, she's heard enough. This is the beauty of this story. This is what Jesus does for every humble heart. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Then they went out of the town and were coming to him. You see the picture? They walk up just as the light dawns on her. So she drops the water jar because she's leaving, but she'll be back. And she's not coming alone. She is walking right back into this town that despises her. And knowing that she has no credibility, she's not going to make a proclamation. She's going to ask a question. She says, listen, I, told, I met a man who told me my whole life. And we know what that shorthand is for. You folks know my life's a big old mess. He told me all my life. Here's the question. Could this be the Christ? It's a humble way of pointing people to Jesus. Not confident proclamations, there's a place for that, but in her case, she knows that her best approach is to humbly admit and make reference to what the, the quiet secret that everybody's not been talking about, how messy her life is, and then say, could this man who has told me my whole life, could this be the one that was promised to us? And it works. 
Because now they're all coming out of the town, and they're walking back up toward the well. Meanwhile, back at the well, if I may paraphrase an old radio show, (laughs) meanwhile, back at the ranch, meanwhile, back at the well, a few Jewish disciples are terribly uncomfortable with Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Now, why are they doing that? Food is wonderful social camouflage. When it's really, really awkward, sometimes food helps because at least it gives you something to do with your hands and mouth so that you don't have to talk. Perhaps you've been there. There are a few social occasions on the American calendar like Thanksgiving and Christmas that pretty much require us to invite family members that we don't really want around. Right? And we've politely avoided each other all year, but we know if we don't invite them to this thing, we might as well send them a certified letter saying, I wish you were dead. (laughs) And that'll be even worse. We certainly can endure this one meal. And what everybody does is eat, and what everybody talks about is the food. That's all that's happening here. Rabbi, like, remember who you are. You're our master, you're our teacher, would you please eat? And he'll have nothing to do with it. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Never mind food. I'm tired, you're tired, we're all hungry. There's something more important here. What sustains me is to do the work, do the will of the Father who sent me. And I'm sorry, I skipped a verse, verse 32. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And it's just comical, the conversation, the side conversations that they're having with one another. Hey, we saw you with that scandalous woman. Could you please eat? We were doing so well down in the south. And now you've made us come through here and you're talking to her. Can we just... Can we eat and get, get back on the road? And he says, I have, I have something to, I have food that you know nothing about. What's he talking about now? What is going on? For you teaching types, this is cognitive dissonance that they're going through, okay? There is new information that destroys all previous knowledge. And the awkwardness just can't hardly get any worse. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What matters to me, what sustains me is to do the will of God. And you think I'm doing the wrong thing and breaking social taboos that should not be broken, but I'm doing this because the Father sent me to do it. And this is written down in the gospel so that we'll know that Jesus is the only one who saves. And once you believe that, so that you will imitate Jesus in following him through that pain, that social awkwardness, and follow him right past those human, traditional, religious taboos to bring everybody face to face with Jesus. He said in verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What does that mean? When I was in Kansas as a kid, I understood this verse because we came right at harvest time and one day I looked out and the sun was shining down on the fields and there was a light breeze and they glistened. 
It was like silver was washing across the fields. When they're ready for harvest and ready to go, they actually do look silvery. They shimmer in the sunlight. Jesus is saying, we've been told that in our spiritual work, there's a lot of work, and then much later comes the harvest. I'm telling you, look around. People are ready to believe right now. Verse 36, Already, he's speaking spiritually about seeing people trust Christ. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap, in other words, to harvest that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What is Jesus talking about? He is saying God has been at work in this place with that woman in this town long before we got here. We're coming into the fields and you say God has no people here. No one is ready to believe here. If they need to hear about Jesus, they certainly won't believe in Jesus. That's going to take a lot of work. That's going to take a lot of time. Jesus is saying, look up. Those fields are ready to harvest right now. And look what he's referring to. It says, then the Samaritans came to him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And oh boy, what's it say there? He stayed there two days. Oh man, first it's a day trip straight through. Then it's lunch by the well. Then it's a conversation that makes no sense to us. Then this scandalous woman is coming back with a whole bunch of people just like her. And look what God did in their hearts because God had been at work there somehow long before Jesus and his disciples arrived. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard it ourselves, and we know that this is indeed what? Savior of the world. Wow. Who said that? Samaritans. Why is this story in the Gospels? So that we will know two things. Only Jesus can save. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Samaria. It's not in therapy. It's not in any church. It is Jesus and Jesus alone that can walk into the middle of people's messes or their religious ivory castles. And only Jesus can save both a Nicodemus, a religious man, and a woman who has completely given up on anybody ever loving her or caring about her again. Only Jesus can save. Why this long conversation with the disciples? Because we are prone to do exactly what they did. You see, folks, if we keep looking down on people, if we spend our time looking down on people, we are never going to be able to do what Jesus said to do and look up and see the harvest. As our culture is increasingly secular and post-Christian, here's the natural impulse for Jesus' disciples. We will form holy huddles and say, it is not time for harvest. Those people, it's going to take a long time for them to believe. 
I'm not saying that nobody should tell them. Maybe I'm saying I shouldn't tell them. But even if I do tell them, I know they're so hardened. They're so far from God. They're so different from us. They're so wicked at heart. They could never believe. I'll never see it, not in my day. Even if I start doing the work, it's going to be a long time before they believe. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look up. The fields are all ready to harvest. They're ready to go. They're ready to be gathered, and it's time for the people who did the first work and us to celebrate together because the harvest is here, and these people are believing right now. Incidentally, do you know what the Samaritans were told customarily wore as their garment of choice in their day, then and now in the current Holy Land? They wore white. The men wore white. So I think what Jesus is saying is, look up, boys. This town you so desperately wanted to avoid, see all those people coming up the hill toward us? They're the harvest. They're ready to believe right now. And the only person who could see that was Jesus. Your challenge as a disciple is to do exactly what he said and look up from unbelief, from your own unwillingness, from your own social awkwardness, from your fear, from the certain knowledge you have that if you speak of Jesus, you'll be rejected and thought stupid, and every other kind of social pressure that makes it tempting for everybody, beginning with me, to quiet down and move on and move over to friendlier lands to look up and see the harvest coming in. But if we stay in our bubble, if we stay in a holy huddle, And we continue to say, those people are beyond hope. Maybe somebody else can reach them, but I certainly can. We will never, ever see the harvest. And Jesus says, the harvest, regardless of all appearances and prejudice, the harvest is ready right now. Can I make it personal? All of us in our lives have probably have a few people that we've almost given up on. And we'll sing songs like Amazing Grace and know that it's true for us, but we will no longer have the faith to believe that it can be true for a certain member of our family. That it can be true from a friend who walked so far away from God that it's socially embarrassing now to bring up the kind of life he's, he's got himself into. I guess one way that I'm asking you is, who are the Samaritans in your life that you would just rather keep a polite distance from Whoever they are, whoever you've almost given up on, understand that Jesus has not given up on them. And he may very well have pressures inside their life and gifts around their life of grace, good Christians that they've met that have made them hungry and thirsty for something that they clearly do not have, and they be ready to believe right now. And Jesus is inviting you to look up and see the harvest and see your celebration in it. So don't give up. Look up to Jesus, not down on people and you'll see the harvest. Can we pray together, please? Two different questions, both important. The first is, are you absolutely certain that Jesus is your Savior? Not somebody else's. I mean yours. If God called you to give an account for your life this afternoon, are you absolutely certain that you would have eternal life? If you're not, if you're working on it, if you're trying, if you're doing your best, but you're not absolutely certain that your sins are forgiven and that you are saved and have eternal life, you turn to Jesus right now. Tell Him you're sorry for your sin and you want His salvation. You want His forgiveness. He'll give it to you. That's what He came to do. 
He came to reach across all the social spectrum, the religiously self-assured and the people who have given up even trying. He came to seek people in need of Him, whatever their social condition, whatever their self-opinion, or the praise or the hatred of others. He came to save anyone and everyone who will hear His voice and trust Him. That's my invitation to you. That in your simple words, you don't need magic words, you just reach out to Jesus and say, I'm sorry for my sin. I've heard you're the Savior. Be my Savior. Save me. Forgive me. And the second question is for those of you, the many of you who are His disciples. And you wouldn't think of denying Him. You're committed to following Him. But truth be told, there's some people you work with. There's some people in your circle of friends. There's maybe especially some in your family that they're really just sort of Samaritans to you. You put up with them, and honestly, you've almost given up that they could ever be with you in a church service like this and sing songs with you to sing and praise the same Savior. Don't give up. Don't look down at them in their condition. Look up. See the Savior. See the harvest. Ready, ready for Jesus to save them and plead for them. Ask that He would because that's what He came to do. If you can think of names, if you can see faces as I mentioned those, that description, pray for them right now, would you please? Father, would you turn hearts toward your Son? He is the gift that saves. I pray, God, that He would open hearts and minds right now. And the one who is here today or the many who do not know you, let them turn to you right now while I'm quiet and ask you to be their Savior. And Father, for the many of us who are familiar with you and follow you, help us not to be caught in the lie that the disciples believed, that some people, some situations are worth just walking quickly through because certainly you can't do any work there. Help us look up with you and see the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.